the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As your pastor, if there were just a handful of truths or themes that I would want you to take away, the top five things that I could teach you to change your lives and increase your worship, one of them would be to look at the big picture. I hope that's come through in my sermons, my Q&As, definitely in men's group. To look at the big picture. In this passage, in this challenge, what is the overarching theme of the Bible that we're looking at? What is the characteristic of God that we are to emulate or that you may be violating? On a more practical and personal level in your own sin, not just the specific sin that is addressed in that verse that is important, but what is the bigger sin? What is the pattern in your life? What is the larger issue, the idol, the lack of trust, whatever it may be? And we get this kind of summarizing statement or summarizing themes in books and in film towards the end of what we've just read or watched. And it is the same here in our passage this morning. For several weeks, we've been looking at a series on spiritual gifts and then order in the church. And as we come to the end of not the book of 1 Corinthians, but of this topic, this section found in 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty-six through 40, the Apostle Paul gives us the big picture. The final lessons regarding orderly worship and spiritual gifts that he wants us to take away and that bleeds into practical ramifications of how we are to live as believers and as the church. Turn with me, if you haven't already, to chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, verses 36 through 40. We've been making our way for several months, verse by verse, through this epistle to the Corinthians. Paul writes, closing off this topic, Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. I want to give you five final provisions regarding orderly worship this morning. Five final provisions regarding orderly worship as the Apostle Paul closes off this lesson, this theme. The first final provision is the rhetorical rebuke. The rhetorical rebuke. In verse 36, he uses two rhetorical questions to make a point as we often do with rhetorical questions. First, he asks if the Corinthian church was the origin of the Scriptures. He says, was it from you that the Word of God first went forth? Did it come from you, Corinthians? Were you the source of the Gospel? Were you the writers, the givers, the authors of the very Word of God? Second, he asks, or has it come to you only? Were you the only recipients of the Gospel? Were you members of that particular church, the only ones who received the Word of God? 
Was it just for you and you alone? Were you the sole receivers of what God has given us? The obvious answer to both of these questions is no. But what is Paul implying with these questions? What is the point that he is making? He's saying that if they were either the originators or the only recipients of the gospel, then they would indeed have the authority to decide what it means, to interpret them as they see fit. They would have an authority independent of the other churches or even of Paul as an apostle and a teacher of the word. As we saw last week, Paul calls them to fall in line with what other churches are doing in terms of orderly worship, but if they were the only ones with the word or the originators of the word, they wouldn't have to do that. And in the same way, they would be independent of Paul and his authority and his teaching as an apostle and their shepherd. If they could answer yes to either of these questions, then nothing that Paul has been saying would apply because, hey, you're the ones, you're the only one. this is yours, do with it as you please. But of course, that's not the case. And the reason, as we have seen over and over again over these several weeks that he asked these questions is not only because of their behavior, but their attitude toward Paul and the other churches in that behavior to misinterpret, misuse their spiritual gifts and not care what the other churches are doing, not care what the Apostle Paul is saying, thinking they were better or not subject to the rules even if and when those rules come from God himself. So to put it in a modern context, Paul could have just easily asked, why do you think you're the only Christians? Why do you think you get to do whatever you want and the rest of us can't? Why do you think you're in a place to interpret the word of God however you please? You're not, and they know this. These questions resonate with us and some of the things we hear at work or at home or with the kids when someone does something that they're not supposed to do. Are you the boss? Who put you in charge? Since when did you become the parent? And this goes back, as we've seen, to the pride of the Corinthians in their abuse of the spiritual gifts, which amounted to their abuse of each other manipulating their salvation and God's grace for their own egos and for their own self-glorification. And so he says, is this who you are? Because you're acting like it. You're acting like you have the gospel only. You're acting like you wrote the gospel. Implied in everything we've seen in this series is the tendency of modern Christians to do the same whether it is arrogantly judging members of Christian cults or liberal churches who don't know any better, or trying to make waves in your own church by criticizing what the church or other people are doing or not doing, while saying you're so holy that your way of doing things is the right way. You wouldn't use those words, but your constant criticisms and judging and judgmental recommendations show that you think Your way is the right way. Or sometimes you defer to another church. You know, this pastor does this. And my old church does this. And those are good. It's good to to help, to help people excel, to help our church worship better. But are you living in a way that you think your way is the only way, that your way is the right way, that you have interpreted the Scripture and you're acting as if it is yours alone and not ours? And so we must listen. 
Because what it all comes down to is God's word and obedience to it. We share this. And we share it because it was given by someone else. It was written by someone else for us. And we must all obey. No matter how we feel, no matter what we think, no matter what our previous experiences, current experiences may be. And that's why Paul continues to explain his role in the delivering of God's truth in our second final provision regarding orderly worship, the maturity mark, or the mark of maturity. Look at verse 37 again. He says, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. This conditional statement indicated by the word if is meant to show that the mature in Christ will recognize that Paul is giving them commands from the Lord. He says whether you're a prophet, this of course, as we've seen multiple times in the past, refers to the one with the gift of prophecy. That would naturally within the church put that individual in the position of a teacher and a leader. It was clearly a mark of spiritual maturity. As we've seen with the Corinthians, that wasn't always the case, but they should go hand in hand. If you're delivering God's Word, we would hope, assume that you're a mature believer. Then he says, or if you're spiritual. Someone who is spiritual is someone who has truly come to faith in Jesus Christ and is subsequently actively pursuing obedience and submission to the Lord's commands. This is nothing new. We understand what it means when we say being spiritual And anyone in these two categories and understand that the prophet would fall under the category, the broader category of spiritual, anyone in these two categories would recognize that the Word of God is the Word of God. They would recognize that what Paul writes is of the Lord. To put it negatively, anyone who does not accept Paul's writing as the command of the Lord cannot truly be a prophet or spiritually mature. Very practically and in that context, Paul is claiming divine inspiration. But we understand that his words are not unique to him. They correspond with Scripture as well as the character of God found all over, including the Old Testament, as anyone, as Paul says, who is spiritual can see. So what does this mean for us? If they can see it at a time when they only had the Old Testament How much more should we when we have the completed canon of Scripture? For example, they would understand that order rather than chaos in worship is not just because Paul is prone to headaches when more people, more than one person speaks at a time or has trouble concentrating. No, it's reflective of God's character and desire for edification so that we can hear those who are praising God or teaching. It falls in line with everything else in the Scriptures. Or that his teaching on women is not because of his Jewish upbringing or his personal male chauvinism, but it is reflective of the pattern of creation. It goes all the way back to the beginning. It's not just Paul's view of things. The application to us is clear. How can you call yourself a full-fledged follower of God if you do not follow the words of God? How can you say that you have reached adulthood when you speak, think, and act like a child? This is a no-brainer. 
You may drive a car, drink wine, wear big boy pants or big girl shoes, but if you lack self-control, are irresponsible, contribute nothing to society, you may physically be an adult, but people will say, that guy's a child. He's immature. And in the same way, you can go to church, you can read your Bible, you can attend small group, you can hug and shake hands of everyone you see at church, but if you're not accepting God's Word as God's Word, then you can't claim to be mature in Christ. Ultimately, Paul is again confronting the arrogance of the Corinthians, as well as addressing any potential arguments they may have to his current teaching. And while they come from a place of egotism and self-righteousness, Paul comes from a place of divine inspiration and self-sacrifice for God's glory. So that's the maturity mark, the mark of maturity. This is not something I think I need to tell you. The mature Christian has to follow God's Word. Understanding God and His Word enough to recognize in that context that Paul is speaking for God. But there would be some who would still disregard his teaching and say, nope, I want to keep speaking in tongues. I want to be heard. What if they do that? What if they continue to disregard these truths even after reading this letter? This leads us to our third final provision regarding orderly worship, the disciplinary disregard. The disciplinary disregard. With the same divine authority with which he delivered the commands, Paul now pronounces a judgment on those who reject his teaching, the teachings of the Word of God. If they don't listen to what's written in this letter, if they disregard his teaching on spiritual gifts, if they disregard his teaching on orderly worship, if they disregard his teaching on women, then they are to be rejected as true servants of God. This is huge. I mean, think about it. This is very serious, yet incredibly simple. If you do not accept the Word of God, how can you claim to be a true servant of God? I mean, how do you define what a servant of God is? The Word of God. And after you define that, how do you know how to perform as a servant of God? The Word of God. It's all from the manual, the instruction book. So how can you be what that instruction manual defines if you don't listen to the instruction manual? And we can possibly sympathize with these Corinthians. They were having the time of their lives and doing it in a so-called spiritual way. Perhaps they grew up without much recognition. Back then, put to work at an early age before they were teenagers. Just an average person in a little town. Then they find the church. They're changed. They're redeemed. They turn to Jesus. And instantly they are given this amazing ability to speak in a foreign language to deliver the message of God. I'm finally somebody. They're speaking in tongues every chance they get. People are paying attention. They feel good. They're finally somebody. Then Paul writes this letter and says, now you need to tone it down. You need to keep it in check. How would you feel? The party pooper. Well, it may be hard, but if you truly follow the Lord and desire His will, then you'll say, I wish that wasn't the case, but absolutely, I'll do what honors God. 
But if you've gotten stuck being more focused on yourself, then you're going to fight back. You're going to say, well, that's general instruction. Paul hasn't heard my prophesying. He hasn't heard me. He doesn't get it. I'm good. Regardless of the real life outworkings of their selfishness, it is this very selfishness that shows that they don't truly recognize or at least submit to the teachings of Scripture. They twist. They reject. They blame shift. And ultimately just doing what they want with no regard to what the Bible says. You say, yeah, I get it. I've been to churches where it's just chaotic. makes total sense to me. They're doing this. If they're having disregard for worship and and, and letting people learn and and hear the teaching and be edified, yeah, of course they shouldn't be recognized as true servants. That makes sense. But you need to keep in mind that what Paul is referring to, and probably even more so in the direct context, is what he said about women. Do you accept that as well? You see, if you do not recognize God's design, pattern, and command for women, then you are not to be recognized as a full-fledged servant of God because you are rejecting the Scriptures. This is ultimately not about women's roles inside or outside of the church. This is about God's role as your authority, your creator, and your Lord in all things. How can you be recognized as a medical doctor if you're telling your patients to ignore the blood results and the telltale signs of heart disease? Don't worry about it. It doesn't apply to us. How can you be recognized as a teacher if you don't teach? How can you be recognized as a husband if you refuse to be married? How can you be recognized as a servant of God if you refuse to listen to God? It's not complicated. Christians follow Christ. This leads us right into our fourth point, the proper perspective. The proper perspective. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. We've previously seen Paul say something similar. He's reminding the Corinthians that prophecy and tongues are a good thing despite what he said. Neither we nor the Corinthians should confuse what Paul has taught and think that these gifts are bad and should be prohibited. They are good. The therefore that starts verse 39 shows us that he is concluding this summary of things we've seen thus far this morning. So it's very telling that he doesn't say, since I am speaking the truth from God, which would be recognized by any who are truly spiritual, therefore stop prophesying and speaking in tongues. No, because that's not what he has said. He says that what he is saying is that these gifts should be exercised. They should be pursued. Desire prophecy in their midst because, as we have seen, it is from God and will edify when done properly. In the same way, though, he has emphasized the lower nature of tongues and the danger of tongues because of their limited ability to build up the church and the focus they have on, the Corinthians have on glorifying themselves. They're not to take his words too far so as to forbid anyone from speaking in tongues. 
He says, I've told you the rules. I've explained the benefit of the gift. So by no means prohibit anyone from doing this. It's a gift from God. Just do it rightly. And as we've seen, there has to be an interpreter. They are to do it one at a time and no more than three. Understanding again that these are no longer in in existence. This was for this particular time period in the church. It's the proper perspective. Don't go too far. Get so scared that we're going to violate something that we throw it out altogether. We need to be careful. And today we too as believers must have the same proper perspective. No matter how much you may dislike something or how much a particular individual may bother you in the church, you are not to downplay a gift or service that that person has been given by God. So long as people do it for God's glory and according to His standard and rules, then all service and spiritual gifts must be encouraged and used. Yes, there is always an appropriate time and place to say, ooh, maybe not that way. That's not encouraging. That's not edifying. But then we encourage them to do the right thing. In leadership, we talk about there are times where you need to tame the horse. You don't take a powerful and beautiful wild horse and say, ah, I can't, it's too much effort to get that horse to be rideable. So you shoot it or you ignore it or you lock it in shackles simply because you don't know how to handle it or you don't want to deal with it. You tame it. You encourage it. You teach it how to live and work in a manner that is beneficial to everyone, the horse included. So on the one hand, there may be someone who is willing to serve. But they need a lot of training. They need guidance. And you don't want to put in the effort to train them. That's no good. Maybe their personality bothers you. Maybe you understand how much work it's going to be. Maybe they keep fighting back. But if they're a believer, you don't just disregard them. They need to be trained and set on the path of service. On the other hand, there may be someone who is serving too much, serving wildly. Perhaps they dominate the small group conversation or insist on doing things their their way, bossing people around. They're a great servant, but clearly not a good leader. We are to take them aside, to teach them, train them, gently admonish them and encourage them, rebuke them, let them know their limits or know that they need to limit themselves. And I'm not just talking to myself. This is not just the job of the pastor or the elders. We all are in this together. You would do this in your home. You, you would do this at your workplace. You wouldn't just close your eyes and say, well, I've got to get the boss to deal with them. You parents understand this. There's a time where you tell your children, hey, you need, why did you just stand there? Why did you just tattle? You knew what to do. Help them. Tell them. Warn them. Mommy, she's running across the street. There's a big truck coming. Grab their hand. (laughs) Say no. Lock the stroller, whatever it is. We are all to do this together, not just gossip and be like, oh, here comes an annoying guy. Oh, don't tell him about the thing because he's just going to ruin everything and it's going to make things slower and we're not going to get the job done. Oh, bring them along and say, hey, do you mind just watching for a minute? 
We need your help. This is good. You're helpful. Uh, But maybe do it this way. People are excited to serve. They want to serve, but sometimes we either just grin and bear it because they're they're overbearing or we just ignore them because we don't want to help them get in line. We're scared to. We don't want to offend. But don't we all just want the same thing, which is to glorify God and to serve one another, to stimulate to love and good deeds? Let's work together. Not so that we can be a great big church. No, so that we can be great servants of the Lord, honoring Him, worshiping Him together, doing it in a way that abides by the Word and will of God. We don't want to take this call for order and worship as an excuse to shut out anyone that doesn't fall in line on their own. Bring them along. Help them. Lead them. Be a brother and sister to them. And just as Paul has rebuked the Corinthians but then told them to continue in their gifts, just not the way that they were doing before, we all have a part in helping one another grow as a community. Don't just jump ship and then throw stones. It's not just by serving, but by helping others excel in their serving. And you've got you to gotta turn the mirror the other way as well. If you're doing that and you're like, well, they don't listen to me, you don't jump ship because of that either. They're members of grace who still think, oh, those grace people. It's silly. Why would you do that? This isn't politics. This isn't workplace politics. This is the church. This is family. Help one another. Let's all strive to have the proper perspective and then move forward to help one another. And when you're being helped, let's understand that we're being helped. We need to swallow our pride and understand that people are loving. And maybe they're not. But it can still be helpful. It still can grow you. Let's receive instruction and encouragement. That's the proper perspective. Use your gifts. Within limits, within the rules, but use your gifts. And finally, we come to our fifth And last, final provision regarding orderly worship, the concluding command. The concluding command. We've seen the rhetorical rebuke, the maturity mark, the disciplinary disregard, the proper perspective, and finally, the concluding command. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. We've seen this theme throughout. Order in the church. But he mentions all things. So all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner, not just the things that he has mentioned. This is the opposite of disorder and confusion. Specifically, disorder and confusion that stems from ego among the congregation because they all want to speak up. They all want to be heard. We need to watch ourselves. We need to watch ourselves because though we won't do this in a Sunday service today, It can boil over into small groups and fellowship and other conversations. Speaking out of term, criticizing, embellishing, or bragging. In those contexts, we welcome conversation and input, 
But look, we all know when we're just trying to get attention, when we're, all, we're trying to put someone else down or lift ourselves up, feeding our egos rather than seeking the edification of others. When it comes to corporate worship on a Sunday morning, everything must be done properly and orderly. Properly means gracefully, becomingly, harmoniously, as we have seen in a way that reflects the character of God. Orderly, as we have seen, involves doing things one after another or in turn. Of course, this specifically applies to those who had these spiritual gifts, not interrupting or speaking over others. And when we talk about in corporate worship, you understand what corporate worship is? When people worship together as a group, a large group or a small group. So basically church, Sunday service. We've talked a lot about wanting to reflect the character of God. And we need to do that. Orderly is the most common theme we have seen. But let's take a look at our hearts. If we want to have orderly worship on a Sunday morning and do so unhypocritically, we must have lives outside of church that also reflect the character of God. Sunday mornings are not a time to simply put forth your best effort for an hour or two, only to live lives of sin and disorder every other hour of the week. Church, perhaps you have read, is not like when someone meets the Queen of England. There's a lot of rules. A lot of rules. How you look at her, how you touch her, what you say to her, how you stand, what you wear. And it's very bad if you break those rules. Sometimes celebrities break a small rule and it's all over the news. That's not what church is. Put your suit on. Look nice, hold your Bible for the first time, brush off the dust, and come in. How do you do? How are you? Welcome. Ooh, yes, praying for Raymond and Jessica. This is nice. Wasn't that lovely? And then you go home, and you're yelling, and you're beating your kids, and you're swearing at your spouse. We need to be careful. Although unique in its aspects, generally speaking, what we see on a Sunday morning should, in large part, reflect who you are. You know, young Children, you understand that most, if not all, of those kids sitting there are not Christians. It sounds harsh to say that of our own children, but they're pagans. They don't know the Lord. They're depraved. They're a good illustration of this. Church kids who don't know the Lord, they have to try hard to be on their best behavior at church. They don't want to sit there that long. They're not interested in hearing 45 minutes of God's truth. And they definitely aren't prone to sacrificially, for the sake of others, sit quietly so others can concentrate. But they're children, physically. And they don't know the Lord. We are adults. We've been saved and regenerated. We can and should do better. Perhaps it would be good to ask you, what are your idols? What are your idols that keep you from being able to focus on God during these couple of hours at church? Mind wandering, foot tapping, walking in and out. If you don't have a baby, that is. We used to, my wife and I used to live in a country where a lot of people smoked. And some of the people at church would smoke. They're 
addicted to nicotine. And so every 20 minutes or so, they would have to leave the church because they need to have their cigarette. And we all knew who smoked because they would do it after church in front of all of us. And small church, they come in smelling like smoke. Well, what's your addiction? What's your cigarette? Maybe not walking out of church, but you can't focus. You don't want to hear this. You don't want to sing. You don't want to meditate on the words when you sing. Is it your phone? Is it the Niners? Is it work? Is it your children? Is it the world? Maybe you're just here for the people and not for God. I like seeing the people. They're my friends. They're my family. Check out during the sermon. Don't focus on the singing. You're distracted, waving at people, tap people on the shoulder. Good to see you. You're just sucking it up until everything's over so you can hang out with the people again after service. Are you here for the people or are you here for God? What is it? What is your idol that keeps you from worshiping fully while you're sitting or standing there on a Sunday morning? Think about it. If corporate worship is to be proper and orderly because it is to reflect the character of God, shouldn't that same principle apply to individual Christians? After all, we individuals are the ones that make up the worship. It's not just when we're together. It's not this building. You cannot say that the police station has to reflect the law of the land, but outside of that building, the police officer doesn't. I like semantics sometimes. None of these words have the name of the Lord in them. Corporate, worship, church. But you know what word does have the name of the Lord in it? Christian. As little Christ, as followers of Christ, our worship is to be proper and orderly because our corporate worship involves the worshipers. And your life outside of church must reflect what you desire or how you behave at church. So maybe it would be better to ask What's your idol that's keeping you from living a holy life outside of church, outside of Sunday mornings? Is any of the things that I mentioned earlier, is it work, is it money, is it kids, is it family, is it fun? You say, Roger, you don't understand. You don't understand. You don't get it. You preach these things, you don't understand. You don't understand how my husband treats me. So, Roger, with all due respect, you're, you don't have adult children. You don't know what it's like. You don't know my background. You're born and raised in the United States. You don't know where I came from, what my parents had to do. You just don't understand. And you're right. I don't understand. And maybe that's better. So that my feelings and experience don't get in way in the way of the truth. I'm sorry I don't understand. I wish I can empathize with you. But even if I did, it wouldn't change the truth. 
the truth of your need to lead your family, the truth of your need to submit to your husband, the truth of your need to put off that sin, to wait until marriage, to not love money, to love the people in the church more than you love your physical family or your coworkers or unbelievers, to be more committed to these people and this service than you are to Hawaii or New York or your cruises or your trips. Maybe I don't understand. It doesn't really matter because the truth is the truth for me as well. You don't understand what I go through. But I still need to submit to God's truth. We need to be careful that it's not just about a couple hours on Sunday morning and then just right in the car, as soon as you're out of earshot, you're screaming at each other on the ride home. In the years that I've been a Christian, since junior high, it's about 33 years now. That scares me. But 33 years now, been to many churches, weak churches, mega churches, solid churches, and I've seen, I've seen people who, who are some of the most well-loved and most respected people on Sunday mornings, shaking hands, fist bumping, hugging, asking how you're doing. And behind closed doors, they're swearing at their spouses. They're yelling at their kids. They're doing inappropriate things. They're, they're submitting to their non-Christian adult children. But they come in here and it seems like they're adding to the worship because everyone loves them. People find comfort in those people. Then they rush off after service because they've got to continue their research on a good divorce lawyer or a lawyer for something else. I'm not saying this to criticize anyone. I'm saying this as a warning. We need to be careful. This is not a show. This is not a movie where you know this is make-believe. People don't do that. The, the characters are represented by actors who don't live like this in real life. This is not what church is. Yes, there's a certain aspect where you, you don't do the same thing. That you... you at church that you would do at home or at work. We get that. How you dress or sitting still or having a Bible on your lap, standing to sing, obviously. But you understand what I'm saying. We need to be careful that we are not hypocritical because that affects your worship, which affects corporate worship. I think you guys get the analogy, right? If I were to build a retaining wall with corporate bricks, it wouldn't be okay to have a bunch of half bricks, broken bricks, sand shaped like a brick. Because that wall would fall. The Lord looks at the heart. Orderly worship starts with what is in your heart right now and then continues on when you're at home. Was it from you 
that the word of God first went forth or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the clear instruction of your word. Thank you for the clarity and wisdom that we can take this and make it practical for our own lives. We desire, above all, to be humble in our worship, not only on Sunday mornings, but at home. We desire to be worshipers at home, unhypocritically. Help us to be pure in mind and speech and heart. Help us to not be hypocritical and have one one way of speaking with our church friends and another way of speaking to our work and non-Christian friends and family. Help us to not have one way of talking and thinking at church and another way when we're in the privacy of our own home. Lord, use us so that we are worshipers always, trusting in your word. And again, as last week, I asked that if anyone has challenges, troubles, accepting or understanding any portion of Scripture, that you would give them guidance and humility to accept the truth even if not especially when it goes against the grain of all that they've been taught throughout their lives or how they feel. Thank you, Lord, that your word is enduring and that it never changes. Thank you even more that it's because it reflects a God who is enduring and never changing. And thank you that we will one day spend eternity with you. And until that day, help us to excel still more and do our best for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand together and close in. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.